Welcome to the Leadership Drip, coffee and conversations for leaders leading the next generation. We're excited to welcome another incredible guest to the table. But before we do, could you do us a favor and hit that subscribe button? While you're at it, go ahead and give us a five-star review. That helps these conversations reach other great leaders. Pour yourself a cup of coffee and get ready to join us at the table for another great episode of The Leadership Drip. Hey, Rob, welcome back to the table at The Leadership Drip. It is a coffee kind of Friday here. It is a coffee kind of Friday. Well, it just throws our guests off. We were, not our guests, our listeners. We release on a Tuesday, so but it's Friday in real life here. But it's coffee every day. It's coffee so it's every coffee day. Monday, we, coffee Tuesday. Yeah. So no matter what right. day it is, drink your coffee. Drink your coffee. It's like a Flintstones vitamin. We are uh, excited to welcome a new guest, a new yeah. friend of ours, uh, Naeem Fazel, the founding pastor of Mosaic Church. Interesting story. He's Pakistani born and somehow ended up in Charleston, South Carolina. We'll get to that story. He was with Seacoast Church and then is an ARC church plant in Charlotte, North Carolina. He's the author of Ex Muslim. And this is the first for us. He's a TEDx TED speaker. Yeah. I think I don't know if we've had a TEDx first speaker. One. Yeah. So obviously of high celebrity fame. Let's oh, welcome absolutely. To the, welcome to the table, Naeem. No, no pressure here. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> hey, man, oh, it's, man. It's, it's, you again i know um i know we talked just a little bit before the show but i do remember uh you know several years ago right after the um city of charlottesville riots broke out uh you guys came out to saddleback was a part of a really kind of a uh, a racial justice sort of conversation for the church and um i know that you are a big part of that so i just want to say thank you for for your investment and in, and in diversity in the kingdom and it just means a lot to me personally so yeah, let's talk a little bit sort of your background because it's not a typical background in terms of pastoral ministry, right? So uh, you grew up in, in Pakistan uh, as a Muslim and then uh, you came to America and somewhere in the middle there, Jesus really got a hold of your heart. So I know our listeners would love to hear your story because I think it's a fantastic story. Yeah, so first of all, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Um, yeah, story is, it's, it's unique and it's complicated. So here's the thing. I'm, I am, I'm Pakistani. Uh, my parents are Pakistani, but I did not, uh, uh, I didn't grow up in Pakistan. So my, my parents actually migrated to the Middle East, which is Kuwait, in Kuwait uh, in particular. And so it's an Arab country to speak Arabic. And I was born and raised in Kuwait as a Pakistani. So my native language, my mother tongue, in a sense, is Urdu. And I speak it. Mm -hmm. That's my first language. Um, but yeah, so technically, yeah, people are like, you're from Kuwait, though. I'm like, yeah, but they don't kind of give out citizenships. So <laughs> even if you're born there, so I'm kind of, yeah. And then they go, well, you're from Pakistan. I'm like, yeah, but I'm not really because I speak it, I look it, but I never lived there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Yes. But yeah, I, I actually, so my story is, is complicated there, but then, uh, yeah, my brother, I have two, two brothers, two sisters, and my older brother got, uh, got accepted to a college, uh, in the U S. And so at this time we're on Kuwait, we're really pumped about that. He got accepted to a college in South Carolina and it was a Methodist, uh, uh, university. It was like Spartanburg Methodist mm -hmm. university. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, we were pumped about that. Uh, but we had no idea what Methodist meant, you know? So we're like, okay, great, America, let's send him, you know? Mm -hmm. So he comes here and and he comes back the next summer and he just is convinced about uh, becoming a Christian. Or actually, he says he's a Christian. And he's going to tell mom and dad and he's no longer a Muslim. And, 
and I threatened to kill him. So yeah. that was my first reaction to this idea of the person of Jesus and all of that, you know? Uh, um, and then uh, he came back to the States because it was so bad, that incident, that he didn't tell mom and dad. And uh, we didn't tell mom and dad. And so we just thought he was uh, going through a phase, you know? And so he came back and then uh, um, the first Gulf War uh, took place in yeah. 1990, back back in the day, and uh, I was a teenager then, and I was in Kuwait. So we got stuck in a war. Iraq invaded us, and we were there. So we, uh, and my family, we ended up staying the entire time. So we were there from the occupation and the liberation in '91, mm. um, and '92. I came, I got to come to the states. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So. Obviously, Kuwait and Charleston, South Carolina, where you kind of find yourself, are worlds apart. So what was that transition like going from being a Pakistani in Kuwait to now being a Pakistani in the deep south of Charleston, South Carolina? <laughs> yeah, so first of all, I didn't know there was a, such a thing as deep south. You, know? right. <laughs> you learned fast, I bet. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, what's funny is I would see these stickers everywhere, like on, on trucks or bumper stickers, you know, that, you know, the, the, the South Pole rise again and things like that. And I obviously did not grow up with American history. So I, this whole time, I thought the South won. Oh, wow. Yeah. I was like, well, they're obviously so proud of it. They obviously won. Right. <laughs> and then my brother was like, no, no, they didn't. So it's it complicated. It's messy. And I was like, oh, okay. All right. So. All that to say, I did not know I was in the South. I just, I was like, this is the U.S. You know, you just think. Yeah. The whole thing is, this is how Americans act. Um, also, my context is Kuwait is as big, the whole country is as big as like Rhode Island. Yeah. Like it is, it is small. So you could drive around the whole country in two hours. You know? Yeah. So, I mean, we're going from there to the U.S., so, but I learned really, I learned quick, like, um, okay, this is not what I saw in the movies, you know, growing right, up. Right, right. So, and kind of got figured that. But then, uh, but I quickly got introduced to like the, the whole Jesus culture, you know, because of my brother, because he was still a Christian when I got here. In the yeah. So, so, uh, you know, obviously at some point then you, you obviously gave your heart to Christ as well. And, you know, that was a whole uh, experience for you. Um, you know, one of the things that we, we certainly do appreciate it, coming from your perspective is there's a lot of stereotypes, a lot of misinformation about about the Muslim world, about Muslim people, about their faith systems or, um, you know, so as a believer, you know, as someone who's a follower of Christ, but who, who came from a Muslim world legitimately, what are maybe some of those things that you can say, hey, as believers, we need to we need to be careful of or things that we need mm -hmm. to pay attention to. Maybe what are some of those, gosh, I don't know, stereotypes or halves that we need to kind of debunk so that we can continue to be better, you know, followers of Jesus as we love on the Muslim population and the Muslim people. Like how do we do that better? I guess is my ultimate question there. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, so my conversion, I mean, and obviously you can, get the book or um, YouTube or Google me and all that. And it was, it was quite supernatural, you know, right. where, you know, and so um, I think what I did not realize is that after I came to faith, so, you know, I had like a 
this vision of Jesus and all that, like kind of a road to Damascus experience like Paul did in the New Testament. So uh, I, when I got, when I began, when that happened, I realized that uh, the, the, the church I was going to didn't really have language or didn't know how to explain my conversion, which is really right. strange to me. Um, uh, you know, in uh, particularly, particular then it was more conservative uh, denominations, and so uh, they didn't they didn't really believe that stuff really happened. So um, what I would say is is that you know in trying to communicate or understand how uh, Muslims or people from a different world. Uh, enter into the story of the gospel you have to realize that um you know the way we've done church is not the way god moves <laughs> like right, you know yeah. like the way that order of service you know this is what happens now you have the altar call now you have that that's not how god moves at all and god speaks when he wants to speak and the, you know it's like you know how jesus said it's the wind of the spirit he goes wherever he wants to do goes the, you know and does whatever I think number one to understand that people from different faiths, especially Muslim faith, God speaks to them in profound ways. And mm -hmm. what we have to do is make them curious about it. Because I think sometimes we just go, if we just tell them accurately and clearly what the gospel is, they'll believe. Um, and it's not actually true. Um, it's making people curious instead of making it very clear and bold about the, the gospel. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah no, for sure. And so, I, I think it really leads into to a good question, and I love this quote, and I don't know if it's your quote or if it's from your book. To be quite honest, I haven't read the book, but um, I don't know if it's your quote or if it's just pull, one you pull from someone else, but I think you're tracking right down a conversation that I would really like to have, and that's that you say, or at least it's on your, your site, that uh, Christ didn't die on the cross so that we could become Christians, he died on the cross so that we could become the church. And I mean, I, that, that's such a profound statement because I think, especially in our that Western. Had, that had to be me. That had yeah. Me. <laughs> yes. It's that profound. It's, it has it's to that be profound. You. If it's profound. <laughs> but I think, I think it's, you know, I think, especially in our Western American context, we believe that the salvation point is the apex of the Christian faith. And it's really not. It's just really this, the starting point. And I think in our discipleship mechanisms, we really need to to maybe shift some of the focus of that. So kind of unpack that statement for us a little bit, because I think it's powerful. I think there's some, there's some truth in there that we need to dig out. Mm. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think that's, uh, that's my quote. I was joking about it, but yeah, I think <laughs> what I realized was, is that uh, coming from a different faith, I realized that, you know, uh, when you, uh, when you don't, when you read the scriptures with, uh, with uh, not a lot of assumptions, and uh, you begin to see some truths in there that you go, oh, I didn't realize this. Like, for example, like just learning to even read the scriptures, realizing that um, that scriptures are are written by and not Western people. Uh, mm -hmm. They are written in in not a non-Western context, and that almost all the scriptures um, are written to a people group and not to right. a person. And so, in, in the in the in the Western world, what what usually happens is is that uh, it's it's about the individual. And so, I grew up in Pakistan and Kuwait, both Eastern uh, cultures. And your identity is connected to the group that you're a part of. Like, my, like my dad's name is not just 
Muhammad Fazl, he was Abu Mahmud, which is the father of the father of um, Mahmud, you know, like the notorious uh, person, popular, uh, you know, sadly was Osama bin Laden. Bin Laden, you know, means son of Laden. Uh, so it's not even a real name. Does that right. make sense? Right. All that to say that the identity, uh, the co- our corporate identity in the in the Eastern world is so much more uh, relevant and popular and and part of people's uh, formation. That uh, if you remove that, then you miss a whole lot of what. Uh, the stories and the lessons and the philosophies and the teachings of that culture. So when you take the scriptures, you understand, okay, so Jesus here and Jesus was a Jewish guy, but he spoke Aramaic for most of his life. Some of the Jewish people didn't even speak uh, Jewish Hebrew. Mm -hmm. They spoke Aramaic because of, you know, all, you know, Babylonians and all kinds of things in their history. But there was a there was continually a story of them being a collective. And so most of the scriptures are not written to a person, they're written to a people. Mm. And um, most of, of the promises that God has said that we've taken and made them personal, they're written to a people. And that's why, honestly, some of them don't work, which people, I think this next generation is coming and going, um, well, it doesn't work. Because, like for example, even the popular ones where God, you know, God makes everything come together for, for good, right? Well, we've taken that, plastered it everywhere, believe it. And I'm not saying that we should not hold on to truth and God's faithfulness. Not, not the point. But the point is, is that that is taken out of context when you say it's that God will make everything work out for me. Right. Which is not true. Yeah. Because people have died believing that, and people have. Um, uh, and, and people live in uh, despair and even bitterness towards God believing that. And so that's when we, when that's when we, um, you know, um, shortchange the gospel. That's when we take the power of the scriptures away, when we misread them and misapply them. So when you, because it's, because again, we are so and, and I, I, what I love about the U.S., I love about the Western world, that, that, it, that, it, that I'm not confined to my past, right? I can make my own identity in a sense. I'm independent. But honestly, in, in, in the story of God, we're not really supposed to be independent, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, even right now in our uh, church, because I'm a senior pastor, and, you know, and we're doing a series right now talking about becoming church, which you guys were talking about. And the whole idea is uh, that, uh, we've been told uh, from day one in in not just in uh, in culture, but in actually in Christian culture too, that you know God wants you to live the uh, your your best life. And right. I mean, uh, we, He wants you to live the biggest life you have. Like you're all we're all called to live these extravagant lives. And uh, the you know, and uh, again, I'm a very positive guy, so I don't want to knock this or throw any shade on this. But the whole idea of the best is yet to come. Like God's going to bless you and God's called you to be a, you know, a leader and God's called you to have this all this success and God's called you to live this big life. And when you, when you take all that, it sounds so good and you want to believe it. And a lot of people do believe it. But then when you look at that and the teachings of Jesus, you go, hold up. What, that's not, doesn't line up. And the way I like to say it is that God never intended us to live 
or write a big story. He, he does call us to find our lives in a big story. And in mm. fact, the biggest story. That's and good. when, when you and I, and when even people, Jesus followers realize that, that every one of us are, have a part to play in the biggest story. And it's a significant part, but it's not the biggest part. Um, because the biggest part is Jesus. He took it. You can't apply for that position. Mm. But and we're all significant. But again, we're working towards the big story. Yeah. I think it sets some people free from despair. It sets them free, it sets them free from the, the hustle. Like, hey, I got to live this big life. Yeah. And I don't have you know, faith. And I don't, I, I, I'm not holy enough. I don't have the talent. And these people on social media are living these amazing lives. And they're writing this beautiful, amazing story. And that's all shallow. And that's not even true. Um, but yeah, does that make sense? It no. does. Yeah, and, it, and it brings up a really interesting discussion and question. I think both attention and opportunity. We, Rob's here on campus with Gen Z students. Our church primarily has a focus on the young adult demographic. So we interact with a lot of like 18 to 25 year olds who are caught in this tension of a collaborative kind of collective culture and that sort of American dream of being somebody. Um, so how is the how are you wrestling that out in your church and in your ministry of helping even even older Gen Xers like us sort of understand that that the tension of the collaborative and the church are really maybe running in the same vein? Hmm. Yeah. Um and that's that's a hard question. I, I you promised me not <laughs> in the in, in the email. Yeah, it's like a it's like a bait and switch type thing. Hey, it's just gonna be easy. This Real easy. Easy, easy name, you know, not a big deal. <laughs> just coffee, just coffee. We drip coffee. That's yeah, it. yeah. Oh, it's like what? Uh, well, number one, I don't know. Uh, okay. Number yeah. two, uh, number two, I think, um, I think that. Uh, I think that I, I think that that I think that the uh, the idea of like uh, the, the redefining what re what responsibility looks like, mm -hmm. you know, I think um, I think there is a um, there if you break it down, it comes with like I think some people take responsibility uh, as authority, and some people take it as um, kind of a, 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 like a cause or a purpose or um, something that they have to steward. Um, you know, I think sometimes in, in the Christian world, you go, you know, God's given you all these, uh, these gifts, he's given you all these things, and now you're responsible. So you go like, okay, so I'm responsible as in, I've got to do this, I've got to, uh, I have authority over these things. I'm, you know, God's, um, God wants me to fulfill my life and my purpose. And I think that the people who realize really quick that, that my, my purpose is not like the end all be all as in my purpose not, is not the end. Uh, so I have, I have responsibility uh, to live out and to exercise and to do the things I need to do to steward my gifts that God's given me, but it's not uh, it's not necessarily um, to fulfill um, 
how do I say it this way? Like, so my purpose, I would say my purpose is a means to God's end. Mm-hmm. That's good. But, but I think what, what people think is, no, 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 God, like, like God's going to give me the gifts to fulfill my purpose in life. So that's where we think. We think that everything that's given to us, the Holy Spirit, the gifts, opportunities, favor, all that is for you to live out your best life or you to live out your purpose, which I don't know if it's true. Right. Honestly. Yeah. I don't think that's, I don't think even satisfaction comes from there because you hit the goal, the big goal. And then what happens? Then you're yeah. bored, you know, then uh, leaders, even like even, uh, even very successful pastors have found themselves in a place. They get to the point where they thought they'd never get to. They got there. They got the, the congregation, the influence, the book deal, the, all of those things. And then they go, well, this is not enough. And then they start getting weirder and weirder. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, because I think it's like realizing I have to I have to be responsible for my spirituality, my gifts, all of that, because my fulfilling my responsibility uh, is a means to God's end, mm-hmm. God's purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can think I that. You, can I, yeah, no, I want to ask you like a, a biblical question in a political framework. So I think okay. as Americans, we don't understand kingdom because we live in a democracy. Like we always get to vote the leader in. And so obviously you, you lived in some uh, sort of hierarchical difference like Kuwait and that would have a, a crowned king or, you know, or a dictator or somebody you weren't voting in. Do you think maybe our, our socio-political understanding of life here in America, the democracy that we get to vote somebody in affects our understanding of the kingdom of God, that we don't have a perspective on that? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, I think that uh, humans, you know, I have always been fond of um, having certain people in charge and uh, for their, uh, for to govern them and then complain about how they are being governed, right? Right. So that's kind of like the idea of like how, like, so... Israel, you know, the story of God would be is like God wanted to be their king, but they wanted a king, so the guy gave them a king, right? right. So then you've got uh, fast forward right now. What we're living with is political systems uh, that we put so much emphasis on. Why? Because we're like they govern the people, and that's how govern people should be governed. And then we argue about what kind of government mm. is the best way to govern people. So all of that is room. Rem- is removed from God's kingdom because in God's kingdom, the way it works is, is the good Samaritan. You are the neighbor to everybody mm-hmm. else. Like, like this is supposed to be like the God's kingdom is, is I know it seems like it's not even, uh, it can't even work this way, but his kingdom is you are governed by like my spirit. You are called to, um, uh, treat your neighbor and take care of your fellow person. Um, and I know it sounds strange because it's like, can that even work? Right. But mm-hmm. like when you look at the teachings of Jesus, I mean, especially in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, I mean, it's basically a st- structure of how to 
govern yourself and actually treat the people around you where you might not need a certain kind of government. Does that make sense? Because yeah. each and every person is responsible for taking care of each and other, everybody else. Yeah. You know, I mean, right now you've got, uh, uh, um, you've got uh, so much, right now I was reading an article uh, this morning actually in Africa where doctors and nurses have, in Africa, certain part of Africa are having to beg for food because they don't have food but they take care of, you know, people. Right. Uh, and the problem is not that there's not enough food in Africa. That's not the problem. It's not the people who don't want to give, like it's distribution. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think that, I think like uh, if we were to understand that we're, you know, God wants to govern us by giving us his Holy Spirit to live inside of us. And then he wants us to be responsible for each and every person. See, that's why I think it's connected to the whole idea of Christian Christianity versus being the church. Like if you and I were told day one, hey, by the way, you don't just, you know, pray this prayer, you get into heaven. No, no. You now sign up. Like yeah. you're now, you just got drafted. Yeah. Like, you, you know, like, what would that look like then? All of a sudden, yeah. now you are responsible for every other human to love them and to care for them. Yeah. We won't sign up for that then. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. No, I just thought this was for me mm -hmm. and my security here and eternal. I didn't know I was being drafted. Like, yeah, it no, makes it does. Perfect it sense. Makes yeah. sense. I mean, yeah. yeah, I mean, love the Lord your God and love others as yourself. I mean, it's right there in the greatest commandment yeah. that. That, you know, that we, we want to love God and we want God to love us. But the other's piece, I think, is the missing piece in church sometimes. But I think at the same point, there's a generation who is really bent on loving others that don't don't see it in the church. Well, I that think, makes sense. I think, I mean, I think for me, what's, what's kind of being pointed out is we're not necessarily moving towards a collectivist culture. I think, I think maybe we are moving towards a more universalist culture like all things are acceptable, but I do think that we're moving closer to a collectivist faith in the Western culture. Hope so. Because I think I think both from the not not in the persecution of biblical sense, but maybe in some cases, yes. But certainly in, in the Western American context, I think the social persecution or the cultural persecution is creating opportunities for us for us to respond any more collectivist way as a body of faith. So we had a conversation with Chris Estrada recently mm -hmm. on the show. and We talked a lot about sort of not being anti-denominational. Those, those pieces serve their structures. But I think also at the same time, what we're finding are, especially in Gen Z, especially like with students on our campus, it's not the primary. It's not the thing that is first on their, on their list in terms of, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Well so, on the list, actually. For right? Yeah. yeah, maybe not even on the list. But what really is maybe this more cause-oriented, maybe this more collectivist sort of front where this generation is seeing that, hey, you know what's most important is that I understand how to work with someone else who's a fellow believer. Why? Because there aren't that many of us, <laughs> right? They're, they're, you know, it's, it's a different price to pay uh, at this point um, for, for being a follower of Jesus. And so... So I think I think what's really cool is is this conversation about you know being saved to be just be a Christian or being saved to be the church, man. That's that's a completely systematic seismic shift in the cultural identity and ideology of how we actually function on a Sunday to Sunday basis. Yeah, right. yeah. 
and I hope more of us are getting it because I think there's a lot of power and a lot of virtue. I think there. the other side of it is is what Naomi is saying. We're saved to love others. We're not loving others minus the gospel, right? Like, which I think is happening in a lot of places. Yeah. Like, we're going to serve others minus nothing the gospel. to do with so, the condition of this world that I live in. Like, right? Uh, and and we just ignore doing good because we're focused on you know just being good or whatever. Like, so I think getting them together, understanding that hey, and it's telling the students and going no no no, this is actually connected. You might have heard something that was not that's incomplete. But when you listen to the teachings of Jesus, let's go back to that. It actually is both. It really mm-hmm. is both. Yeah. And uh, like, so I was an art major in the college Charleston early on, and then I s- switched. But um, so I don't know if you guys know the the story of um, Starry Night. So Starry Night by Van Gogh. You, you guys know what it looks like? That's yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. 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 Right. Everybody knows that. Uh, most everybody. So um, you know that uh, some people believe that Starry Night was an indictment against the church. Hmm. Hmm. So Van Gogh was a pastor. He was a pastor and he has his own congregation. Uh, If you look up his autobiography by um, Ivan Stone, The Lust for Life, it's an excellent one. It's it's thick, but it's worth it. Um, And he goes into just the story of Van Gogh. So he tells about the, the fact that he was a pastor. He had his own congregation and... He was uh, by a denomination sent to a certain town. He lived in that town. And then his denomination had a way of doing things. It was a very proper way of doing things. And he moved away from that and then began to actually live not in the apartment that the church provided, but actually live uh, with the people. And he opened up the church for a lot of other things. His services looked different. And one night there was a fire and he opened up the church and there were 30 people who died. And he opened up the church as became a basically, you know, first response center and his overseers came that evening as well. And they saw what happened and they saw what he was doing. And he had ripped out his parts of his, uh, his uh, priestly attire and was wrapping babies up and all kinds of things. Anyways, the next week they fired him Mm. because they were like, Oh, you've lost the sanctity of the house. Like you're, you're becoming just like one of these people you're trying to save. And he was like, that is the point, right? That we become like them, like we live in their world. So that led him, he got fired. He That led him in a very dark place. So Starry Night uh, is an indictment because uh, if you look at the painting again, every uh, building in that, um, every home in that painting has light. Yeah. And the whole painting is about light. But the only building that does not is the church. Wow. So Van Gogh, was saying that even though the center, the church wants to be in the center of everything, which it is in the painting, it has no light in it. Wow. There's all light and his hope all around the world. And then, you know, the giant tree that he put up there? Yeah. The giant tree is basically him saying that there's more organic love and hope that reaches the heavens and the steeple is just pretending. Wow. So I think this, I know, (laughs) so this this generation, they don't, they don't even know it, but it's like all the Vangos. They're like, why would we go to the church? Because it's the only place that does not have light. Mm -hmm. And so for us as a church, we're like, Hey, we got to reclaim the message of the movement of Jesus. We got to get, put the light back in the church. Like Mm -hmm. we have to show people that no, there's actually more light. Like we are called to be light. You know, you can't, 
but I mean, I'll just say one more thing. But the light that God is talking about is not like God, like human manufactured light that we that we provide by um, by our own intellect and by our own technology. And that is what the next generation is going to go into. They're like, we'll figure this stuff out. Yeah, you can figure out everything. Mm-hmm. It's it's not it's not supposed to be that. It's supposed to be like he didn't say, "I will give you a light to carry you around." He said, "You are, you are light." Like mm-hmm. the word there is. I mean, I don't even know if I can say it. It's it's numerescent. Like like you glow from within. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like that will change the world. Yeah. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, yeah. That's I, great, man. Love it. I know it's a it's. No, I, but <laughs> no I, I think it's yeah. I think it's a great conversation because I think it echoes so much of what we're seeing in terms of young adults engaging in the church, the questions that we ask, how do we get them there? How do we get them to stay? How do we get them activated in the local church? I mean, all these are, are great conversations, but I think you're actually hitting on it because it's not that they don't desire the light. It's not even that they don't want to reflect the light. It's just they don't it's just not going to look the same as it does mm-hmm. to our traditional mm-hmm. systems and models and understanding of what the church, the quote unquote church is. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so when you start talking about uh, changing entire sort of mechanisms and systems and traditions of, and again, traditions aren't bad, right? That's, that's not the, the case yeah. either, but when you start messing with those things, that's where the tension comes in because you've got leaders who are, you know, older like us, right? Can we just say that sure. plainly? Like, yeah, we're, you know, we're, we're very, we're very accustomed. We're very disciplined in how we do church. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of that disconnect is, is that we're not sure that the church is going to look the same, you know, 15, 20 yeah. years from now, yeah, but yeah, I don't know yeah. that it has to, you know what I'm saying? Like, right, right, I don't, we right. might not have the answers, but I don't know that we need the answers because I yeah. think what I'm seeing across at least our campuses and other campuses is that that light is burning extremely brightly mm-hmm. in the hearts and the lives of students who are sold out for Jesus. They're not yeah. afraid to show it. They just yeah. don't know how to carry it in, in the, in the, in the sense of, of being, you know, strategic or mechanized or ordered or whatever. It's, yeah. it's so organic. It's so sort of, um, you know, spontaneous almost. And I think we're having a hard time of, of grasping how to grab a hold of it and roll. You know what I'm saying? So I think in their energy and then sometimes zealousness that comes out very prideful when you're in your twenties, because I was Mm -hmm. in my early twenties, never, (laughs) you don't know how to fit into the church culture. Like you feel like such an outsider. Like I got this zeal for the Lord and Mm -hmm. the church doesn't have that. Um, So maybe help us understand how can we incorporate that light? I think the Van Gogh painting is a great representation right. and, and make it a, a part of the, not the building of the church, but the larger church conversation that I think we started having, like, how do you sort of gather those lights and then maybe release them? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I think one is like this idea of like really discipling people, like uh, beginning uh, with people to go, okay, what kind of church are we going to become? Right. number one i mean again like i know it sounds great but man just it changes your it changes your worldview philosophy even changes the gospel for you in a sense when you go hold up hold up i'm the church i'm the church i'm not christian i'm the church mm-hmm. way more responsibility way more oh god 
this this matters not what's good for my church no what what's good for the kingdom are we moving it forward so i think um it starts with discipleship uh, number the first thing i think what i at least i try to do is is go okay so again it's got connected, it's connected to my story so i can't get away from that but um i uh, you know early on i i felt god um ask me a question and basically the question was do you recognize me out of context mm. and i it was a interaction i had with a person uh at a random uh, target i did not recognize them because they were out of context and I just began to really think about that and study that and focus on that for years. And I realized, man, my biggest uh, um, regret would be to live my life not being able to recognize God out of context. That is what the Pharisees were guilty of more than anything else. God was right in front of them and they, mm. did, they did not recognize him. And I think if we raise up a next generation who does not recognize God out of context, we're going to be in trouble because right now they're like, yeah, I don't see God in any of this. I don't see God in any of this because what we've been taught is like, we know how to, we know how he looks like or what he did, how he moves in prayer meetings and services and gatherings and church conferences. We know we're like, Oh, God's all over her, all over him. But then I don't know what, where is God from the guy who's drunk, clearly drunk and shouldn't be. Well, how do you talk? How, how do you, how, is God even working there? Like, right. is he God forsaken? And I think if we can teach people, number one, man, we have to learn to recognize God in people's lives. Like he is at work. Yeah. And he, that's, and, and that's huge. You know what that is? That's taking Colossians where in Colossians, it says everything was made in him and through him and by him and for mm -hmm. him. We live in, in, in him. Basically, everybody has a God DNA. So what if, what if we were taught our next generation of the church and said, hey, um, let's, let's not put in Jesus. Let's, let's call out Jesus from within them. Yeah. Let's go, hey, I, you know, because so often the gospel evangelism has been, we're going to go give them Jesus. Yeah, but what if we were to call it out of them? Because that's a whole different conversation. Yeah. And that, I mean, when I tell Muslims, hey, I think Jesus is already talking to you. And they go, what do you mean? I don't even believe in him. I said, I know. But I think that's Jesus is talking to you. And I have seen people convert and cut conversation. I mean, mind-blowing conversation. They go, you know what? Someone is talking to me. They're like, I'm like, yeah, I know. That's Jesus. Like, oh, <laughs> oh. But I thought I, I need to go get him. I need to believe in him. And then he starts talking to me. I'm like, no, no, this guy. He'll start talking to me right now. Yeah, yeah. You know? yeah. And so I think when people go, hey, um, you know, um, if we teach the next generation, hey, we can call Jesus out. I think that changes the game for a lot of people. And so I know at Mosaic, we try to do that. We go, you know, you might feel like, I actually kind of go, uh, you know, the whole idea of like uh, reaching people far away from God. I am like, I'm like, no one is, no one's far away from God. I'm like, because people make that as an excuse not to have a conversation with God. I'm so far, I don't even, I can't even, I'm not, I'm so far away. I'm like, 
No, you think you are. Right. You, you, he's actually inside of you. Like, the, like if he were to leave you, you would stop breathing. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah. That, like we don't even know what it means for God to leave us. It is the breath of God that we actually breathe. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, like if, if, if you take away all the exist, like, I think when people, that's so much more inviting, right? Yeah. So much more like, hey, hey, we're in this together. We, I might know him a lot more of him. You need to know this person of Jesus. Like this, the, the, this person of Jesus who talked about the God who's given you breath. You might have so many different views of who this God is. And there's so many cultures and there's so many traditions and there's so many religions, but you need to look at what Jesus said about this God. Like he, he calls him father. Like there's something about that. I'm, you know, I think when you start changing the language and under, showing people that they've been born you know, on purpose with the breath of God that's been, and who's been wanting a relationship with them, a relationship that will change their life and also change the world through them, man, it, it changes everything for, it changed the world, you know, right? Yeah, I mean, I, man, I've got a lot of stuff going through my head right now because I mean, that's, <laughs> I mean, in some ways it's common sense. You're like, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, Colossians, yeah, right, we get it. Like, you know, we understand the things, but to actually implement or to actually activate the things changes our entire philosophy and worldview, I think is, is what you're saying. So, um, and it also creates, I think, a much more cultivating relational sort of um, Jesus follower experience than one that necessarily requires you to, to attain some specific skill set, right? So if you talk to a lot of people that don't share their faith, they don't share their faith because they think they have to give people something right? You're selling them something. You're selling them something. Like, even if it's just your own story, you're still selling story. Like, Hey, God did this in my life and this is the new change and that's all great, but you're still selling them something. But I think if we were to reverse or not reverse, but invert or shift or whatever the word is you want to use to, to refocus how we approach people from a cultivating conversation, it also takes all the weight and responsibility off of you. To call something out of someone that's already mm-hmm. there, their divine DNA, which I fully believe, right? Mm-hmm. That God created them for purpose, you know, for purpose on purpose, right? If and I truly yeah. believe in what you're all, only thing you're doing is actually calling out of them something that's that's already already there. And that takes a lot of personal weight off of you, right? In terms of being able to sell someone Jesus or you, are, you know what right. I'm trying to say? So I think it, it really shifts the entire dynamic of, of what it means to evangelize. Yeah. I, right. I don't know. And, and yeah. And in the calling out is not just one time. See, once right. you do that, then you're used to like, Hey, that is what, you know, brotherhood, sisterhood. That's what the church does for each other. We always call more of God out of us. Like, yeah. So it's not I mean, supposed to be one conversation. Right. Yeah, I think, I think then the shift and maybe it's not the best word for it. I don't know yet. I haven't decided is that, like you said, we have to become better recognizers 
is that a verb? I made it up. Recognizers, maybe. <laughs> recognizing, better at recognizing. Maybe that's it. Better our, at hey, recognizing. Our English, our English is superior. I have a master's here. degree. It's okay. Um, As an yeah. expert in the language. Right. Uh, yeah. I would say. So better at recognizing the God that is in them all along so we can call that out. So maybe is that our responsibility or maybe something we need just to develop is is recognizing the God that we wouldn't normally recognize. Like you mentioned the target story. That's a great question. Um, is that a, a responsibility of ours? And if so, how do we go about learning to see God where we, maybe we don't expect him? Oh gosh. Hmm. That's not to me, right? You were just going to ask me that. Maybe our audience has an hey, answer. Next, like, time, they next, call time, in. next time you're on the show, we'll talk about video games. We'll talk about like, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, favorite right. vacation destinations. <laughs> I thought this was about coffee. <laughs> what are you black drip like are you are you a latte kind of guy like where are you at on the spectrum uh, don't don't patronize me uh, uh, um no i mean yeah these are these are i think these are the questions i mean i think there's a lot of trial uh you know um i think i think you got to get over the idea of you have to get it right mm -hmm. uh with god um, you know, so, so, you know, I, I got introduced to Christianity. I got, uh, I started attending a Southern Baptist church, uh, because my brother was going there. I felt, I woke up in the middle of the sermon one day and I said, th I thought this cannot be right. I was like, this cannot be because I had a supernatural experience. And my book goes into the stories of like demonic stuff and all that right. stuff I couldn't even understand. So then I started looking in the different churches then went i mean i was full-on pentecostal at one point and then i mean did the whole circuit you know kind of thing i feel like um so i think that in all of those even this idea of like wanting to get it right when you hear from god is a big it's a big burden sometimes it's like i just got to get it right and god does not want you to get it right like he does never expects you to get it right like he always misses, he expects us to misunderstand him. Yeah. Yeah. Like he, he, here's why, because he's like, even if I told you my thoughts, you would not get them. Yeah. Like, 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 because my ways are higher than yours. So yeah. just don't even just do the best. What you, you hear, do it and I'll use it. I'm always cleaning up <laughs> like your, your mess. Okay. It's not going to stop. You're never going to not. Like there'll be one day that, you know, you'll know me as I know you, but that is like another dimension there. Yeah, yeah. But as of right now, you don't see clearly. So just go for it. So I think that if we get the, the get the idea out of like, we got to get it right. I think we'll have a lot more conversations. You know, I've talked to people who go, I've kind of said, you know, I think God's working and sometimes they shut me down and other times they open wide up, open wide up. Um, and then being being open to the supernatural yeah i mean really guys I yeah mean, i mean like I, mean, I can't tell you how many supernatural things have happened and what i mean by that is i'm like you know i'm in the middle of a conversation i'm like why are you telling me this and then they go why am i telling you this you know or how do you know this or why did you say that right like yeah. um we've no i like the human spirit is always it's, it's like you know how the it says that, that they're like all of creation is 
uh, groaning, right? Mm -hmm, right. Uh, you know, well, we are all of creation too. So yes. like what that means is there's something inside of us, even in our subconscious level, is that always wanting to hear from our creator. Like, mm -hmm. so every human is, is, even though they might be like, going the opposite direction there's a constant conscience of like i mean what is your conscience anyways if not a antenna for god to speak right mm -hmm. so it's wanting to hear so i think there are there are so many people in people's lives like they don't even know but they want to know like they want to know i mean they might not want to know jesus because they have this again they've got this then go idea of jesus you know i'm gonna walk away i don't want anything to do with the church but um, but I mean, I might be just rambling here, but, um, but I think like the understanding and knowing that people want the conversations about Jesus and about what God's doing is, should be normal. Um, yeah. the supernatural should be normal. I mean, those, yeah, the, right. The, right. I mean, the supernatural should not be, um, fringe experiences for a select group of people who have prayed through certain, you know, bondages or whatever, right? That's, mm -hmm. that is a type of supernatural mm -hmm. reflection of who God is, but the supernatural piece itself, by the very nature of the fact that we are followers of Jesus and dwelled by the power of the Holy spirit, we right. carry the supernatural with us, right? And those encounters that you're talking about, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, those people encounters, those, seeing Jesus out of context encounters. Those are supernatural realities. And yeah, I mean, you don't know. And, and I say this a lot. I say to the students a lot here, every single day of your life, God will put someone on your path who yeah. needs to know and experience the love of Jesus. If we're willing to see it every day, yeah, yeah. there's yeah, not yeah. a person that you won't encounter somewhere in a store yeah. or in yeah. a restaurant or whatever, who doesn't need, but are we, are we available? Yeah. For those supernatural right. promptings mm -hmm. to allow God to move us into those, into those conversations. So I yeah. think we may not yeah. see the super in the natural, like, yeah. you know what I mean? Like we may just be an expression of love to somebody and that person's going, how did they know that I needed that? Um, a friend of mine was telling me a story and I'll tell a story and we'll go back to the questions, but they needed a bass player for their church and they were at a coffee shop and they said, this is what they said for mine, I guess. They, it was their team. Like the Lord, the next person that walks by, we're going to ask them if they play bass guitar. And they're in a coffee mm. shop. The guy walks by and they go, by chance, do you play bass guitar? And the guy goes, yeah, as a matter of fact, I do. And they're like, come to church mm. next Sunday. Well, he comes <laughs> to church, tries out whatever, eventually gives his heart to the Lord. And the story comes out that that day he was contemplating suicide. Yeah. Oh, they didn't know that that God. day, yeah. but, but eight or 10 months later, they find out that their natural was a supernatural expression. And so yeah, sometimes yeah. we just have to do the natural, like God work out the super part. Yeah. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. We say in mosaic, we say we have to learn to be naturally supernatural. Yeah. Like, like just, it's, we don't have to be like, thus sayest the Lord. Yeah. I felt, you know, <laughs> it no, doesn't need no. to be manufactured. Yeah. It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't need to be, be manufactured. So yeah. man, wow. we're running out of time and uh, you know, I really, really would like to carry on the conversation. Uh, but there is one final question we ask all of our guests on the show. Yeah. And we're going to ask you right now. It is a little bit softer of a question, right? A little bit easier. <laughs> it's about coffee. It's, no. it's, yeah. uh, not no, about, coffee, about coffee, but you can answer about <laughs> coffee if you so desire. Uh, so the final question is this. 
Uh, what is one lesson that you learned in college that did not take place in the classroom? Oh, shoot! All the lessons. I mean, but, <laughs> but uh, all uh, of them. I mean, yeah. <laughs> what did I learn? What lesson that did not in the classroom? Hmm. Um. Well, I think, I mean, like, uh, I think the idea of like, uh, I know it'll be sounding weird, but hu- just hustling. Yeah. Like, cool. Like, as in hard work. Yeah. Like, um, I think, I think college, again, my college experience was very different because I came here, then I was a refugee, then I was illegal for a while, then I was working three jobs. Or work in it and then I had to take classes in three different colleges and then finally graduate from the college of Charleston in six years so this is very different but honestly I mean in the classroom in college it was more like I'm gonna find myself and that whole find myself or I gotta figure out what I love and what I do I mean I think I think what I did not what I did not learn there was no you gotta figure out what you're gonna give your life to you you gotta mm-hmm. figure out the kind of person you're going to become you know not worse not the kind of person you're going to what you're going to do and so I think for me that was the big thing like it was not in the classroom that I struggled with a lot of people what kind of person do am I going to be you know instead of what do I need to do as a job That's cool. awesome. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Name. It's been yeah, man. a real pleasure to have you on the show. I want to make sure we mention the book again. It's ex-Muslim. I'm sure you can find it on Amazon or anywhere else books are sold. We touched on the story, but that's the in-depth version. Yeah. I recommend p- putting it on your reading list, on your Kindle, buy the hard copy, whatever you can get to get hands on it. Um, and as we always say here at the Leadership Drip, you have a seat at the table. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Leadership Drip. If something from this episode was helpful for you, then share it on your social media and tag us. If we see it, we may reshare it on our channels. We appreciate you taking the time to join us. And remember, you always have a seat at the table.